I believe that she can bring that intersectional perspective of, of having experienced life as a woman, as a black woman, um, as a mother, uh, and all of that, I think, will, will be to the benefit of us and the court. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. On Friday, President Joe Biden officially nominated Judge Katanji Brown Jackson for a seat on the United States Supreme Court. And at that moment, history was made. Jackson is now the first Black woman to ever receive this nomination, and if confirmed, will be the first Black woman to serve in our country's highest court. Anita Hill, a professor at Brandeis University, described watching the press conference, saying, I sat up straighter and felt grateful to have witnessed another glass ceiling that was shattered in my lifetime. Hill herself became a national figure in 1991 when she accused the U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment. Thomas was previously her supervisor at the U.S. Department of Education and the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So for her and many others, Friday's announcement was especially meaningful and also long overdue. Today, Hill speaks to Word Radio CEO and URL Media co-founder Sarah Lomax-Reese about her own story and the significance of Jackson's nomination. She also discusses the op-ed she wrote exclusively for URL Media about what it means for a Black woman to be on the United States Supreme Court. Now, a quick message from our friends and sponsors at McKinsey & Company. Find out about the biggest ideas in business on McKinsey's Insights app, where you can listen to podcasts like our flagship show, The McKinsey Podcast. We're so not tuned in to the dynamic going on for the current employees. What matters to them most? Or watch our author talk series featuring law professor Dorothy A. Brown. 60% of Black college students don't graduate. And when I came across that statistic, I got so depressed and read lots of articles about, for example, The Next Normal, where you can learn about the coronavirus's latest impact on business. To hear, see, and read more, download McKinsey's Insights app now. Now, back to the show. Here's Anita and Sarah. So let me just first thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with us at URL Media and um, Word Radio and the the Black and Brown community in particular. This moment where a Black woman Supreme Court justice nominee has been put forward is absolutely historic. And so I want to get into that and your perspective on that, which you shared in the op-ed that you wrote. But before I get into that, (laughs) I really want to ask you about your personal experiences. If we could go back to 1991, Uh when you were testifying in front of the Senate Confirmation Committee for then uh, Supreme Court Justice nominee Clarence Thomas. And I remember so vividly, we were crowded around the television watching you confronting and, and testifying in front of 14 white, older white men who seemed to just be so dismissive in in my recollection. You seemed so alone 
but you also seem so determined. And so I just wanted to see if you could, if we could start off going back to your state of mind, your state of, of being in that moment when millions of people are watching you reveal some of the most traumatizing experiences of your life. And you're telling it in very detailed, vivid description of how you were sexually harassed when you worked for uh, Clarence Thomas. Well, first of all, what you just described really does say it all. But it also says why today I'm still doing work to address the issues that were raised in 1991. My state of mind then was that I came before the Senate Judiciary Committee to talk about the character and fitness of the individual who were they, were they were vetting for the Supreme Court. I set before them telling the truth. And I understood that they couldn't relate to my experience as a woman. They couldn't relate to, relate to my experience as a Black woman. They couldn't relate to my experience of working for Clarence Thomas when I was uh, about 25 years old and being incredibly vulnerable and concerned about my future. People said, well, were you worried about your career? I was worried in the first instance when the behavior started happening about being able to make a living. And the harassment happened. I ultimately decided to leave Washington But I did come back to testify when Clarence Thomas was being considered for the Supreme Court because I believed, and I still believe today, that what I experienced, the harassment, spoke to his character. Yes, I was nervous, but I gave myself a charge, and that is to tell the truth. One of the things, and I remember this so clearly, that really surprised me as a a young Black woman at that time was, you know, I expected the, the, the white men who were grilling you and, and uh, assessing, you know, the, the validity of your testimony. I assumed that they would be hostile and, and disbelieving. But what really shocked me was the way that so many in the black community, I felt like they turned against you as well. And there was a lot of people saying, why is she airing our dirty laundry? You know, why is she trying to take a black man down? And men and women in the black community, I heard, were vilifying you as well. Did did that surprise you? Or were there things that came out of this that really were like a sucker punch for you? Well, I think the thing that did bother me was that so many of the critics, even in the black community, accused me of being the pawn of white feminists. And what that said to me was that there was a real denial in the community of the sexual abuse and harassment of Black women, that they had sort of bought into the idea that Black women weren't as vulnerable or that they weren't as worthy of being heard and taken care of and protected against this behavior. I've come to understand that as a defense. I mean, we have dealt so many years with racism that when a situation like that that emerged in 1991 comes up, our first instinct is to be concerned about 
how racism might play. And since then, I've come to understand that that sentiment was not universal in the Black community. And I think even within the Black community, we have grown. You know, shortly after the hearing, Mike Tyson was accused of rape and the Black community, including Black ministers, rallied around him. Victim, he was ultimately convicted and his victim was a very young Black woman and they abandoned her, you know, and that was clear. But five years later, I believe it was when he was released from prison, there was a planned ticker tape parade for him and Black women stood up and said, well, he should not return as a hero. So the ticker tape parade never happened. And I think that was a moment, five years, and it took five years uh, of really us telling our stories and bearing witness to our own experiences and the experiences of others to move us in the direction. I, and today I hear from young women who are saying, and black women who say, I, I still am having problems coming forward because the person who is abusing me is black. But I also hear from young black men who are saying, I want to be part of this movement. I want to be part of the anti-gender violence movement. And so I think that's a neat enough. There's a seed now that we can work these issues out as a community. Yeah, I mean, definitely we have seen progress and, and movement. Um, some people point to your experience in 1991 as kind of the, the seeds that started planting the Me Too movement. And we've seen, you know, high profile people like Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby actually be prosecuted for uh, sexual misconduct and sexual assault. And that that is encouraging. However, we also saw what happened to uh, Christine Blasey Ford in the, the, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination hearing. And so that felt like it was a throwback to what you experienced. And so, you know, it seems like in that context, we have not progressed very far. And I'm wondering what will Katanji Brown Jackson be facing when she goes before this committee? You know, I think we're all wondering that. I, I think that this this uh, resistance to hearing women and, and hearing Black women in particular, I believe, is still there. And I think that's why people are concerned. Uh, I'm hopeful that they will be able to rise above that. But I know it's going to take some work. And even if the proceedings go in, in some ways better, there is still the conversation that there are still the conversations that are happening outside of the hearing that can do damage to this nomination. I think the response to that, though, is for us to demand more from the Senate Judiciary Committee. It has changed. It's much more diverse now. There are women on the committee. There is one Black male on the committee. So we're talking about a different body right now. But the history is still there. And we have to be clear that we haven't forgotten 1991. We haven't forgotten 2018, certainly. And that we expect more for Katanji Brown-Jackson because she deserves more. I mean, she so deserves to be able to sit in that seat and to share her story, 
to share her wisdom and her knowledge. She deserves to be able to show what kind of judge she will be and the contributions uh, that she will be making to the court. All of these are so important. They're not just important for her success. They're important for the success of the Supreme Court. Yeah. So um, you wrote a a really powerful op-ed that um, URL has been uh, has been distributing. And you started off saying, I watched anxiously as President Joe Biden approached the podium flanked by two black women. President Biden was about to make history yet again with Vice President Kamala Harris by his side, the first woman of color to serve in the role. The announcement that was weeks in the making was finally spoken into existence. And that's when he announces Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to become the first black woman nominee for a seat on the United States Supreme Court. I'm curious, and this is a a question from one of our our members, Epicenter, one of our URL members, because, you know, Joe Biden, Senator Joe Biden presided over the hearings in 1991, where you were really raked over the coals. And now he is making this historic nomination. Like, how does that land for you, given your history? How did that image impact you seeing Kamala Harris Judge Jackson flanking Joe Biden, who had been kind of your nemesis in a way in 1991. You know, I was excited to see it. Honestly, it was exciting for me to see what I believe is progress, absolutely progress. You know, you have the vice president, the first woman of color, the first person of color to serve in that role. You have the first Black woman Supreme Court nominee. Who couldn't be excited about this? And is that an indication that Joe Biden has evolved? I I would like to think so. But whatever it is and however it has happened, I'm focusing on this moment that in my lifetime that I can see two glass ceilings broken, one political and one legal. And for somebody who is a lawyer and who has had uh, interactions with the political system that haven't gone so well, I, I don't think I could ever ask for more than that. And and so, well, but I probably will. It's okay. <laughs> you should. Well, did, was, did did President Biden? This was a question we got from Twitter. Did President Biden seek your uh, counsel when trying to determine who of the the three kind of finalists he would go with? No, I did not hear from President Biden. I had nothing to do with any, anything directly to do with this decision. I'd never heard from him. I think, you know, the slate of candidates was really remarkable. And I think it shows us just the kind of talent, you know, in t- integrity that's out there that we should be tapping into more broadly. So, you know, when I saw the slate, I thought, this is great. And people will now know there is talent out there that is overlooked. I, we don't have a pipeline problem. We have a visibility problem. And now I believe that diverse talent is going to be much more visible. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this conversation is that on one side, there, there's some in probably mostly in the Black community who see Black women, you know, in 2020, we there was like black women finally got their acknowledgement of being like black women are saving democracy, you know, the super voters. And, you know, we we are kind of the, the ride or die demographic in the Democratic Party. 
And there was some acknowledgement to our consistency and our power and our influence. But there's an assumption that if we're selecting a Black woman, then we are compromising the, the quality on the Supreme Court, that there's this notion that it's an affirmative action kind of nomination, and that's going to diminish the, the prestige and the expertise on the court. And so I, I wanted to see if you could talk specifically about what you think a Black woman uniquely brings to that space that would not be there otherwise. Well, first of all, let me just say, she brings to that space experience, education, training. She brings to that space a sense of herself. And as uh, President Biden mentioned when he introduced her, she not only thinks about the law, knows the law, understands it, having clerked with for Judge Justice Breyer, she thinks about the impact of the law. And so I think, first of all, she is well-grounded in her skills and the knowledge about the law. So that's just the baseline. Uh, but I don't want us to forget that because I think the people who are crying, this is an affirmative action hire. The people are just ignoring the fact that she has all of these other things that the other justices on the court have. But secondly, she brings the potential. And I don't know how she judges, but she brings the, the potential by being in the room where decisions are made. She has an opportunity to inform the other justices about how the law that they are making will impact certain groups of people. From her own firsthand experiences as a Black woman, she can talk about how voting rights restrictions will impact Black women. She can talk about how restrictions on abortions will impact women in places like Mississippi, where there is a large Black population. And we need that voice in the room where decisions are being made. The other thing is that you know, we we talk about diversity, and I believe this is more than symbolic. I think this is important. People need to see a court that reflects some of who they are. They need to see diversity on the court. If they are before a court at any level, especially in the federal system, that there will be someone in that system who understands their experiences. And that's one of the reasons that I'm excited about uh, Justice Jackson because I, I, I already I'm already calling her Justice Jackson. <laughs> She's not Justice Jackson yet, I know, but Judge Jackson because I believe that she can bring that intersectional perspective of of having experienced life as a woman, as a black woman, um, as a mother, uh, and all of that. I think will will be to the benefit of us and the court. Now, I know you said you had two questions. Yeah, I have two two more questions. Um, I want to go back to, I've always wanted to ask you this question about Clarence Thomas, because, you know, many, many, many people in the Black community do not see him as an advocate for Black people. We are deeply disappointed in his role on the Supreme Court because he was, he replaced Thurgood Marshall. And obviously Thurgood Marshall was this 
this towering progressive thinker. And Justice Thomas has really worked against the black community and our interests on, on the Supreme Court. And, and I'm just curious, like you played such a pivotal role in the, the nomination process, in that whole process. How do you feel seeing what kind of a justice he actually is on the Supreme Court and knowing everything that you know transpired with you? Like, how does that sit with you? Well, I'm not surprised. I believe in 1991 that what I testified to was an indication of how he viewed the law. Remember, we're talking about a man who was in a position, he was in charge of enforcing the law against sexual harassment. And he was behaving in ways that broke that law. And so it was clear to me that he would not respect laws that are put in place to prevent discrimination. So my final question to you, Professor Hill, is what, well, it's two, it's a two-parter. Have you been asked to prep Judge Jackson for the hearing? And if not, or even if so, what would you counsel her to do in that hearing process? Well, I think I would give her the same instructions that I gave myself. Understand that your job is to tell your story, to tell what kind of judge you're going to be, to tell your judicial philosophy, to tell why you love the law and it's so important to you as a person, but as a citizen of this country, that that it is fulfilled. That's her job. And that was the charge I gave myself, honestly. I said, you know, I can't make them believe me except by telling them what happened and telling them my story. Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, will bring a unique perspective to the court, that of a Black woman, a mother, and so much more. In Hill's words, a Black woman on the court, as with all diversity, has potential to expand the judicial imagination to include new ways of thinking about fairness and justice as delivered through the law. This historic moment will also give more people confidence that our courts are truly representative. For more of Hill's take on the nomination, check out our show notes. We've linked to her exclusive op-ed for URL Media about what it means for a Black woman to be on the United States Supreme Court. Finally, before we go, our weekly segment with our community manager focused on COVID-19 here in New York City. For a lot of our listeners and readers, it feels like the COVID-19 restrictions and guidelines are changing by the minute. In fact, over the weekend, Mayor Eric Adams made an announcement that could affect kids in public schools and anyone who visits restaurants, gyms, or theaters. So what's the latest? On Sunday, February 27th, Adams declared that New York City was getting ready to lift school mask mandates and vaccine requirements for restaurants, gyms, and movie theaters. That's only if the number of new COVID cases in the city stays low. To give you a sense of where we are now, as of February 27th, the share of tests with positive results was at 1.2%. He clarified that this Friday, March 4th, They'll evaluate the numbers to make a final decision on whether or not to remove the indoor mask mandate for New York City public schools, assuming there aren't any unforeseen spikes. 
Then, on Monday, March 7th, Adams will make a decision on Key 2 NYC requirement, which currently requires anyone five or older to show proof of a COVID-19 vaccine if they're participating in public indoor activities like indoor dining, indoor fitness, and indoor entertainment. Keep in mind that for now, all other vaccine mandates in New York City will remain in place. That includes one for city workers and one for employees of private companies who work in person. But this may change in the next few months. Remember, while masks may no longer be required in some situations, you always have the option to wear one if you feel unsafe. I understand that the quickly changing restrictions are complicated and for some of us, scary. So don't hesitate to reach out to me if you have any questions. We've linked to a handful of ways to get in touch in our show notes. That's all for today. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com to stay in touch. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our podcast description.